Happy Sabbath to you. And a final day to say this. Happy Chinese New Year. <laughs> now, I don't know how many of you noticed, but there are two new things in church today. Or two new developments. So the first one, I don't know how many of you noticed, but today was Sini's first day playing the piano. And her uh, New Year resolution was to play the piano. And so, uh, so yeah, we, we uh, fulfilled your New Year resolution, and I pray that this resolution will be a habit throughout the year. <laughs> Now, for anyone else that can play the piano, please, Zach needs more pianists. Uh, Kevin, we're waiting for you. And uh, anyone else, please approach me. We need more pianists. Now, the second thing that uh, is new in church is the health challenge. Okay? And uh, it's something that we're trying out new for this year. And so we're giving you guys one week of preparation to mentally prepare yourself for 400 minutes of exercise beginning next week. Yeah, 400. Two weeks, man. That's right. Yeah. Okay. See, some of you are afraid, huh? You hear 400. It sounds so scary. It's only one hour a day, you know? Okay. All right. Now, before we begin our sermon today, I would like to invite um, us all to, as far as possible, to bow uh, with me as we pray. Father in heaven, I'd like to thank you for this morning, this Sabbath day that you've given to us. And this time as well where we can worship and look at your word in peace. Lord, today as um, we talk about um, this topic that you have impressed uh, upon my heart, I pray that the message will be clear and that we would be able to learn something personal and that you will speak to our hearts and that you would change it. So I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a little bit of world history, okay? Okay, the topic for today is God's music. God's music. Now, a little bit of world history. What happened, or who, know, who knows here what, what was happening in America in 1863? World War II? No. World War I? No. <laughs> well, generally, I find that... Uh, that uh, our world history is very poor. Well, 1863 was when the Civil War was going on between the North and the South. And, you know, on one side you had uh, famous Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln, and his troops called the Union. And on the other hand, you have the other team or the enemy, as the world history likes to call it, uh, and they were called the... called the... Come on, man. Called the Confederates. The Union versus the Confederates. And this, was, this story happened in November 1863. Now, just to give you a bit of context, three months before this, the Confederates were actually winning the war. They were pushing forward. They were pushing up to northern ground. Um, and it was at this, it was, I mean, it was, it was at this particular place three months before that the Confederates started losing the battle. Now, the general or the main commander of the Confederates was a man named General Robert E. Lee, or we'll just call him Robert or Mr. Lee, okay, General Lee. And three months before this event, the tables had turned and 
Robert was losing ground. The general was losing ground. And now the Confederates were being beaten back bit by bit back south. Now, November was wintertime and one of the worst winters during that century. 20 to 30 centimeters of snow. And, um, and General Lee and 2,000 of his soldiers were hunkered down in a river called Rappahannock. Okay, Rappahannock. Now, this place was central to the battle. Why do I say that? Because this was a transfer point between the north and the south, somewhere in the county of Virginia. And if they lost this battle, they would, have, they would be pushed back, almost, they will lose almost four or five months of ground, and most likely will lose the war. And so General Lee's idea was that, look, they had one bridge that crossed this river, okay? And there were two crossings on the Rappahannock River. And so all General Lee had to do was defend these two uh, crossings for the whole of winter. When the snow melts, then they can try to fight back. So most of the troops withdrew, and he was there with 2,000 of his men, and all he had to do was make sure that they had enough food, enough ammunition, enough bullets, enough uh, rifles to last the winter. So very easy, right? You see, the, you see the, the guys on the opposite side of the river? You shoot and make sure that they can't cross. And so the fighting began on November 7th, noontime. The enemy soldiers were coming and um, there was a shootout and they were shooting and shooting and shooting. And the shooting went on for hours and hours, the whole afternoon, the whole evening. And General Lee was starting to panic, starting to feel afraid. He was uh, paranoid. He thought that maybe this prolonged shelling was a diversion tactic. He thought that maybe this shelling was just a diversion to hide the fact that the Union soldiers were trying to cross the stream across the river, somewhere downstream or somewhere upstream. Makes sense, right? Because you don't need many people to keep shooting bullets. You just need to have a few guys to keep shooting and the rest of your troops can go elsewhere, right? So the next morning, in his paranoia, he dispatched a great part of his soldiers up north, up upstream and downstream to try to see if there were some troops coming at them. But unfortunately, this was the genius of the enemy's general. He expected General Lee to, to do this, and he called a double bluff. And so, just as the enemy saw General Lee thinning out his troops, the enemy stopped the shelling and charged towards the barracks. Pushed down the last remaining men, killed them, and they took over the confused fort the confused troops. And that day, the Confederate lost more than 1,600 of their 2,000 men. And that battle was known as the battle, the second battle of Rappahannock Station. Now, this is a story that you would find if you went through battlefield.org, if you went through history books, if you went through the whole list of campaigns during the Civil War. But there was... What, I mean, there was one particular event that happened during this small, short battle that not many people are aware about. It was a very, very peculiar event. 
Let me tell you what happened. So that night, as they were settling down, you know, for the night, and there were just a few, uh, you know, a few men left at the front, the Confederate camp was awakened to the sound of horns, trumpets, and other brass instruments, army bands, yeah? Army band instruments. Playing the tune, Battle Hymn of the Republic. You guys know that song? In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea. Yeah? You know, Battle Hymn of the Republic. And realizing that the music was coming from the enemy camp, the Union camp. And the Confederates, you know, they said, okay. So once they finished the song, the Confederates had their own band and they started playing a counter song. Because the Republic, uh, Battle Hymn of the Republic was a uh, national kind of rousing anthem for the Union. So the Confederates played their own song. And then when they were done, the, the Union band, what do you think they did? They played another song. And then the Confederates said, okay, you, you know, we can do better than you. And then we played, they played their own song again. And this went on for hours and hours throughout the morning, or the, the, the wee hours of the morning, meaning midnight. And, you know, it's interesting because this, this, uh, this episode ended in the dawn when the men of both sides were singing together across that one-mile river. And it's unfortunate that the battle commenced soon after. But seemingly, during this time, this three, four, five hours, there was peace. There was some sort of humanity amongst these two enemies, troops. And this is not the first time this has happened. And you fast forward a couple of years, well, quite a lot of years, during the World War I, and there were you know, over 100,000 German and British troops camped along the border of Belgium. And they were fighting over what, they would, what we call today as no man's land. And you know, a similar experience happened from 24th to 26th December, 1914. Christmas Eve, and everyone was hunkered down and it was winter again. And one German man started singing Silent Night, Holy Night. And his friends joined in. And before long, the British soldiers could hear the melody coming from the other side and they joined in singing as well. And before you know it, all of the troops across, and they were very far apart by the way, all the troops across this whole expanse began singing, laughing. They came out of their, uh, their trenches they played football together. They exchanged gifts, exchanged cigarettes, exchanged memos, coins, stuff that they have from their homeland. And there was peace. The war began soon after on the 26th. Or the battle started again on the 26th. But during these three days, or two days and two nights, there was peace. In the middle of the war, in the middle of a shootout where people were dying left, right, and center. There was humanity. And what was the key to this peace? It was music. Very interestingly, music. And you must be wondering, can music really have that sort of power? 
Because in the middle of war, and, and Ellen White talks about this, that war is Satan's device to prevent humans from being saved so that masses will be killed. People will never have a chance to know God. And in the middle of this war, this bloodshed, people are you know, hard-bent on strategies to kill the enemy. Let's count the number of casualties. We kill a thousand, we, they kill a thousand of us, we kill a thousand of them, right? They, they, they throw a grenade at us, we throw another grenade back. Airstrike, we send an airstrike, right? In this era of war and, and revenge, in the hearts of men and commanders, hardened by sin and bloodshed, rape, death, murder, music was somehow able to stop all of that in its tracks. As if the men were transformed back to their normal human selves before sin took over again. How is that possible? How is it possible that a few frequencies put together can have such an effect? How is it possible that melody, sound traveling through time at a certain wavelength can have such an effect? And today I'd like to propose to you a very um, simple idea, maybe even radical. I'd like to propose that music perhaps is not just, or it's not as small as a hobby as we like to think it is. It's not just something for us to enjoy, something that, you know, some people are more blessed with and others are not. Some people can appreciate and others don't. But it's something, it's something as powerful as prayer and Bible study giving, given to us to have victory in our Christian walk. And friends, if you have been in the church long enough, you know, this is not a new topic, okay? You have heard a lot about music, right? And growing up, I've heard a lot about it as well, right? People fight about it in church, what music to play. Um, they argue, causes churches to split. There's a lot of seminars on effects of the brain, effects on the body, right? Subliminal, mes- subliminal messaging. And it's easy to get all technical and all that, but today, this is not what I'm going to be focusing on. Today's message is to answer a very simple question. How powerful is music. And I'd like to start by inviting us to turn together to Exodus 32, verses 17. Exodus 32, verses 17. And um, this is a story of right after Moses got, got the Ten Commandments down from, the Mount, from, from Mount Sinai, and he was trekking down, okay? He was trekking down, he met up with Joshua, who uh, waited for him halfway, and this is what happened in verse 17. It reads, And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is noise of war in the camp. And then he said, or Moses said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery. It is neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. So imagine this, Moses, and, uh, Moses just had uh, you know, a great talk with God face-to-face, uh, audibly, and he received the Ten Commandments from God, right? And then he comes down from the, from the mount and meets up with Joshua, his trusted commander, and then they hear sounds coming from the camp, loud sounds of human voices. And Joshua says, whoa, I think we're being attacked, right? Um, I think there's war. We should rush down. What did Moses say? 
No. I don't... The What I'm hearing is not voices of men, right? Uh, shouting commands and, you know, being happy because they won, right? To overcome. Neither is it sounds of men being slaughtered, you know, losing, in other words. But it's the sound of music. Verse 19. And it came to pass, as soon as they came nigh into the camp, he, Moses, saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mount. So what were the Israelites doing when Moses was interceding on the mount? They were worshipping the golden calf. And how was it that the worship was characterized? There was loud, or there was music and dancing going on. It's not a worship service where everyone's seated down, right? Uh, and uh, there's a sermon going on, right? They're listening to the, to the priest sharing. No. What was it? It was music playing. People were dancing. People were, were, were celebrating, were worshipping, in a sense. Let's look at another account in Daniel 3 verse 7. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, psaltery, sackbut is a, is a bagpipe, by the way, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, had, the king, had set up. Another issue, another instance of worship, this time with all the nations that were known um, to Central Asia at that time gathered all of them, Nebuchadnezzar, on the plane and said, hey, I need you to worship my image. Here's some music. Let's worship together. Let's look at another instance. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 454, verse, uh, chap- uh, paragraph 3, speaks of the story of Balaam tempting Israel. Let me give you the context, okay? So all of you know that Israel came out from which nation? came out from which nation? Israel came out of? Egypt, right? So they're coming through, coming out from Egypt. Egypt. They, they go through all the plagues, go through all um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the running away from the Egyptians. They run into the Red Sea, Red Sea parts, they go across, they sing, right? They're happy. They go through the desert, and they go through multiple issues, they reach Jordan, and then they fail to cross, correct? And then they spend 40 days, 40 years in the wilderness going round and round and round, and now they come back to Jordan and they're ready to cross again. And it is at this time that this event happens. At Balaam's suggestion, a grand festival in honor of their gods, the Midianites' gods, was appointed by the king of Moab. And it was secretly arranged that it was secretly arranged that Balaam should induce the Israelites to attend. And uh, of course, was it easy for Balaam? Yeah, he was the prophet of God, right? So everyone believed him. And great numbers of the people joined him in witnessing the festivities and they ventured upon forbidden ground and were entangled in the snare of Satan. Again, at a spiritual high, there was music and then there was worship. The Israelites, people who have suffered 40 years and the, the, the generation had died off, right? This is a new generation. And they were strong and Balaam weren't, wasn't even able to curse them because of a festivity, because of music, because of, in this case, women as well. The men and women and families in the camp fell and worship 
Baal. Remember, at Mount Sinai, it was also a moment of, moment of, moment of, uh, of, uh, of victory. It was when they were going to receive the Ten Commandments. In Daniel, it was when the vision was cast, right? Daniel was supposed to share the vision. But no, Nebuchadnezzar used it to his own uh, benefit. And this is serious stuff because the list goes on. You know, the prophets of Baal, uh, the prophets of Baal were also dancing around Mount Carmel when they worshipped Baal. And it also seems to work both ways because David hired musicians to play each Sabbath at the temple and they, he lists all their names down. You can look at First Chronicles 6. There's a whole list of musicians. Uh, I hired this guy to do this, this guy to play this and play that and his job is to play every week in the synagogue. And David himself led the service with music. Some of you may not know this, but Prophet Samuel was a, uh, was a, I mean, he started up a school, right? The School of Prophets. And one of the curriculums that they had back then was formal music education. These uh, prophets would need to learn how to sing, play the harp, play music for five years. And if you read very carefully in the accounts um, of, uh, in Genesis, whenever the prophets prophesied, they had to sing first. They had to sing, they had to play music, and then they prophesied. They asked God, what should I do? Should, should we attack? Should we not attack? You know, what, uh, show me your will. It always, uh, always began with song. Paul and Silas, they were singing as well and worshipping in the dungeon. In Revelation, the redeemed, the saved, sing a song on the sea of glass. And, you know, I, I could go on and on and on, but in every case, we see that music can transform someone or make someone worship either God or worship the devil. And what does that tell us? That tell the, tells us that music is very, very much a part or very, very much sometimes even the reason for worship. And Bible and prayer, yes, those are important. Those are very um, physical, right? You need, you need to kneel down, you, you speak, right? Physical, you need your brain to work. Um, and, uh, and it's intellectual, right? You study the Bible, you need to uh, comprehend, you need to have, understand language. But music is just is, is as emotional as it is intellectual. And this is a question that I'd like to pose to us today. How much music do you use in your personal walk with God? And music, I believe, has a large connection on whether or not we worship God. And, you know, maybe you, you feel too down, too tired to study the Bible or pray. But how about listening to some music? How about singing to express your emotions or how frustrated you feel? Choose a spiritual song, a hymn, a scripture song, anything. Sing it. And if you don't like to sing it, then, you know, play it, right, on YouTube. When we listen to music, how much of it do we actually use in our daily lives? Do we sit down and let the lyrics wash over us just like the words of a sermon washes over us? Do we, you know, pause and allow the melodies and the harmonies to combine and give you that tingle up your spine and make you cry? 
You know, it's a different feeling when you're, you know, singing or listening to music by yourself to God. It's a very, very private moment in a sense, almost like a prayer. And, you know, perhaps music, friends, is the key to your spiritual, emotional, and even mental stability in your walk with God. Did you know that majority or almost every character in the Bible were musicians? Let me show you. Do I have? Oh, I don't. Okay. Um, Abel, Cain, and Seth, right? Kids of Adam and Eve. Great-great-grandson of Cain is called the father of all things harp and organ. Harp is string, organ is wind, right? This guy, uh, Jeff Rao or something like that, uh, he was the father of all things harp and uh, harp, lyre and organ. And what does that tell you? The family of Adam was musical. And yes, this Jehral guy was pointed out because he was the best, right? But don't tell me he learned it from nobody, you know? Um, and in case you didn't know, Adam lived up to the time of Noah. So all of them were one big family in one big area, and they all were musicians with this guy, the father of all. Cain's, uh, sorry, Moses and Miriam, they were musicians too. Moses could sing. He wrote some songs. Miriam wrote a song, obviously. We sing it. Um, Samuel, he was a great musician and singer, Prophet Samuel, at the same time. And he, and he was the one that set up the curriculum and trained uh, all his prophets to sing. And as I also mentioned just now, right, all prophets, meaning the tribe of, uh, not prophets, uh, priests, uh, priests had to sing before they prophesied. So what, what does that mean? When the priests serve in the temple, they have to sing. So, tribe of Levi, you got, all got to sing. You all got to learn some instrument. David played the harp. Um, and he was also a songwriter. David wrote a song when Absalom uh, uh, betrayed him. He also wrote a song uh, when he was happy, uh, when uh, the ark came back to, uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, he, he also wrote a song. Uh, when he fell to the deepest, darkest time of his life with Bathsheba and the death of many, many Israelites because of that. David was a music guy. Job was also a musician. In his pain, when he was uh, inflicted with sores, he wrote some songs in his book. You can go and read it. Solomon was also a musician. He wrote the Song of Solomon's. And he sang, and it's also known that before his fall, he sang lots of spiritual songs. Jesus, as well, was a frequent singer. If you read the chapter um, on Jesus' upbringing in his childhood, whenever Jesus was bullied, do you know what he did? He went to the mountain and sang to himself. Why do you think he did that? He probably felt really sad. Right? He was the outcast, alone. And it says, you know, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it goes something like this. In the morning, the village would hear melodious singing coming from the hills. And it, come, it came from Jesus' mouth. But sadly, how many of us tap into this powerful resource of music today? How much inspired music goes on in your own homes, in your own lives, in your cars, in your earphones, headphones? How much of this music is something that inspires you and that is, is part of your life. 
And I want to challenge you really today to consider adding music and singing to your daily devotions and daily lives. Consider this quote from Education 168 verse 1. Music is one of the most effective means of impressing the heart with spiritual truth. Just stop there one moment, okay? So problem statement, people not impressed with spiritual truth, right? Solution statement, music. Not prayer, not Bible study, not sermons, music. Music is one of the most effective means of impressing the heart with spiritual truth. How often to the soul hard-pressed and ready to despair, memory recalls some word of God, the long-forgotten burden of a childhood song. The long-forgotten burden of a childhood song. Have you ever paused to think why she says that? Because when you grow up singing the song, you don't like it, right? <laughs> it's a burden. But now, because of that quote-unquote burden, temptations, number one, lose their power. Number two, life takes, up, life takes on new meaning and new purpose. Number three, courage and gladness are imparted not to you, but to other souls. Music converts you. Music encourages you. Music removes temptation. Music changes your life. Music gives you power to evangelize. In one quote. Consider this other quote. In the next uh, paragraph, it says, As part of a religious service, Singing is as much of an act of worship as is prayer. Indeed, many song, a song is prayer. Evangelism 498, paragraph 1. There must be a living connection with God in prayer, a living connection with God in songs of praise and thanksgiving. Notice the two things she highlights, prayer and singing. And that's it. Isn't I mean, I feel like sometimes we take music a bit too lightly. Now, the second reason why I believe music is very powerful is because it is able to cast out evil spirits and free us from temptation. Consider this story found in 1 Samuel 16 verse 23. And it came to pass, speaking of David and Saul, when the evil of Spirit of God was upon Saul, David took a harp and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. So what happened? God allowed an evil spirit to, to, to attack who? King Saul. Rest on King Saul and attack him. Now, if King Saul was living today, do you know what he would be diagnosed with? You know, I don't, I don't know how many of you uh, realize this, but you know, when I was younger, I used, I, used, I used to love to read Genesis. Okay, I read it again and again and again because the stories are very cool. And then once you get to the next book, then it's boring, right? So just Genesis. Um, so I would read the story and I love, I especially love the story uh, between David and Saul. Always fighting for chapters and chapters and chapters. Very interesting, right? But, you know, looking back now, there's something very interesting or disturbing even about Saul's behavior. You see, Saul, if he was living today, he will be given, he will be, um, he, he will be given the diagnosis of a personality disorder uh, or even, you know, uh, something we like to call um, a kind of a dissociative identity disorder, which means that 
He is like two people in one. He has, he has selective amnesia. He always forgets they chase David. Uh, you know, uh, he, he, in one moment, he loves Jonathan. Next moment, he throws a javelin at him. One moment, David is his best armor bearer. Next moment, I want to kill him. You know, one moment, he's like, man, David is the best champion, right? Kill Goliath. Uh, next moment, man, I'm so jealous at him. I'm going to throw, I'm going to kill him. Uh, you know, one day he chases David, kills him, and for months and weeks he goes on and on and on, and then David goes, what are you doing? And then he goes, oh, sorry, and then he leaves, right? And then he forgets, and then he goes, he gets angry again, and he chases David again, again and again and again. This happens so many times that David is so sick of it that he went to Philistines, uh, went, to the, 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 went to Gad, right? And he, tried, and he pretended to be, to, be, uh, to be crazy, right? Just to get away from this madman. Saul, if he lived today, would be put in a psychiatric hospital, locked up and given antidepressants and, you know, shocked every single day. Psychoelectric, shocked. Because this guy is crazy. But friends, what was the cause of Saul's mental condition? He allowed the evil spirits to come and attack him. Saul was a righteous man. Do you know that? Saul was chosen, anointed. Oil was poured on his head. Nobody was, like, if you killed him, you would die, right? That's what happened to the man that killed Saul, or claimed to kill Saul. David killed him. Saul was a righteous man. For that reason, God chose him to lead the Israelites. But unfortunately, Saul allowed his ego, his jealousy, um, his negative traits to take over, and Satan capat- uh, capitalized on that and was able to transform Saul. So one day he is Saul, the righteous man. The next day he is Saul, the sinner. Saul, the murderer. Saul, the vengeful king. And what was the solution? David's harp. David's harp was able to chase the evil spirit away. Isn't that powerful? Music has, or had in this case, divine power. And this has been a very real experience in our lives as well. And I'd like to invite my wife up to share her perspective on what's been going on in these past few months. Um. This is, a, this is a very personal story to me, and uh, he asked me to share it just now. <laughs> so just, uh, I'll be real quick, just bear with me. Um, many of you may know that in the past, and I, and I share my testimony, that I struggled with depression. Uh, but not many of you may know that until quite recently, I struggled with an eating disorder called bulimia as well. Uh, bulimia is when you eat... You eat and then you throw up. You, you, you cause yourself to throw up because you think you're fat or you think you're unhealthy or you don't like yourself. And I've been struggling with bulimia since I was about 13 years old. Um, so I struggled with it for about eight years until I joined SALT and until I was converted. And I remember that after I got baptized, it stopped for a couple of years. Now, something happened in our marriage um, in the end of 2018. 
um, that really hurt me and I started having bulimia again. And I remember, I remember accepting it and I, I remember having this, this thought that I need to do this again. I need to throw up again or Sean will not love me. And it... <laughs> And then I remember this time in 20, around 2018, 20, the start of 2019, that it was really bad. It was so bad that Sean wanted to admit me into the hospital because my, my, my esophagus, my throat, was so damaged that I couldn't lie down. I couldn't sleep in certain positions because the acid would come up and my, my throat wasn't working anymore. Now, back in November last year, um, after the AOI meeting, some of them were there, David shared a book with us called Spiritual Warfare uh, after his experience with, Buff, uh, with Buffy. And I started reading the book and I remember that I had come to a very important chapter. Uh, I forget which one it was. And I just, I knew, I remember that as I was about to read the next section of the chapter, I was, I, fe I felt paralyzed and I couldn't move and I just, I just lay there, not knowing what was going on. And it was as if Satan didn't want me or allow me to read on. So as I lay there, paralyzed, I knew what was going on. And so I prayed. And I could not do anything else because I, my brain could not function. That all I could do was sing, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I don't know all the, the lyrics to Jesus loves me, except the first two parts and the chorus, Jesus loves me, this I know. But I remember it singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, over and over and over again. And about 15, 10, 15 minutes later, eventually, I was able to come back to consciousness and I read the next chapter. And the next chapter taught me what to do. I remember I, 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 I got up and then I prayed in Jesus' name that whatever was, whatever demons or whatever was causing me to have bulimia, to leave. Now, since that day in November, I, since I said that prayer, I never struggled with bulimia again after that. Um, and those thoughts don't even come to my head anymore. Sean said, uh, I don't remember this, but Sean said that in the past, when I used to struggle with bulimia, when those thoughts come, I would shake and I would shiver and I would cry and sometimes I would scream and ultimately I would have to throw up just to get rid of this feeling. Now these symptoms of shaking and trembling and not being able to take it are the same symptoms that you would have for someone who's trying to quit smoking or drugs or alcohol. And it's interesting because some people call bulimia an addiction but my bulimia went over went away overnight. Um, and that's normally not how addictions work. And I don't even have those thoughts anymore, so I'm very surprised myself. Now, I don't struggle with bulimia anymore, but there are some other illnesses that I'm trying to overcome. And every time I feel them coming, every time I feel myself trying, being paralyzed or having headaches or stuff like that, I sing Jesus Loves Me. But I don't really know a lot of other songs <laughs> except Jesus Loves Me. And if I can't sing because I'm unable to vocalize, I play a children's recording of Jesus Loves Me on my phone. And somehow that always, that's always able to drown out the noise. You know, since, since my, my bulimia, 
since since that time, I overcame it. I've put on I've put on about five kilos, uh, five kilos. And everyone has said to me that, oh wow, you fat jaw or, or your face round or and you know I say yes, it is, <laughs> because I'm happy because I know that this is healthy and the fat that would have driven me crazy in the past now is my sign of victory in Christ. So that's how music affected my life. Amen. I ask uh, <clears throat> her to come up because um, I don't think I'll be able to vocalize or share that in as much uh, detail as she had. And as weird as this may sound, as weird as this may sound, I sometimes wish that all our struggles are as simple as that. Um, you know, just pray. Say, God, kick that demon out, and you're done. How easy it would be, relatively speaking, um, if all our struggles were like that. But unfortunately, we also have our sinful self to deal with, right? And James talks about how temptation, uh, like, don't give credit, like, don't blame God for your temptations, right? Uh, blame yourself, because you will let those temptations come in. And, you know, now that Satan has lost the edge on bulimia, um, he hasn't given up yet. And he also capital, capitalizes on our weaknesses, and he tweaks circumstances to find, to find the right time, the best time to attack. And what we've found, personally, is that music has been a very, very powerful tool to help us combat or fight the forces of evil. And some of you may remember in our wedding video, um, we featured a song that would miraculously be able to prevent uh, Evelyn from having nightmares or paralysis. Um, and, you know, that song and, and many other songs we, we have racked up over the months and years now has kept us safe from the hands of Satan. Somehow, when the music plays, once the music plays, or when you sing, the atmosphere changes, and Satan has to leave. And I'm not sure how to describe it in words to you, but it's real. It's like an aura. It's, it's just a sense of it's different. Um, and it's very, very real. But having said that, however, I don't think that we need to give the devil too much credit. For the temptations, the trials, the, uh, the evil wrong thoughts and the urges in our lives, uh, for a lot of these temptations and struggles, you know, these are all self-inflicted. We allow those temptations consciously to come. But at that same time, I, we also cannot deny that we are fighting a very real war against powers and principalities. And growing up as a Christian, I never really thought too much about this. I mean, yeah, yeah, we know Satan is real and you got evil angels out there, but you can never touch me, right? I mean, that's the belief that, that it was ingrained uh, growing up. And you know, your friends always say, oh, Christians are never afraid of ghosts. Have you ever heard that? Christians are never afraid of ghosts. It's an Asian thing. Yeah? Uh, the Buddhists are afraid, the Hindus are afraid, Taoists are afraid, but Christians are not afraid. So... That's, that's kind of the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the perspective that I've always had, right? You know, so we're fine. We always have this bubble. There's always a, a garden angel around us. You can do anything. You're always safe. But what I've learned um, uh, is that Satan 
or the angels, the evil angels are very, very real in our lives. And, um, you know, some, if you're experiencing something terrible, something, uh, something that you're struggling with, some temptation, some urges, some anger issues, some hatred that is unexplainable, there very likely will, may be a spiritual aspect to it. And we find that you know, Satan is able to use his thoughts, uh, the, the, I mean, sorry, use, uh, use, use, use his genius in a sense and, uh, and able to influence your thoughts through the circumstances, the things that happen and tell you that you should hate this guy, you should be angry at this guy um, and will tempt you to do evil. I'd like you to consider, I'd like us to consider this passage in Ministry of Healing 254, paragraph of, of, of two, I think. Yeah, two. Aid in the resisting of temptation. Let praise and thanksgiving be expressed in song. When tempted, instead of giving utterance to our feelings, let us by faith lift up a song of thanksgiving to God. Have you ever stopped to think how that looks like in real life? Let me give you an example. You get this thought about how you're just so pissed at this guy. And you are just tempted to be pissed at him, right? And make his life hard. What are you supposed to do? Sing. <laughs> you feel tempted, so tempted, to do something you know that you should not do. You're sitting in front of the item or whatever it is you wanted to do. What do you need to do? Sing. When you're faced with thoughts of discouragement, you feel and you really genuinely feel and have logic it out in your head that nobody loves you, everybody hates you. What do you need to do? Sing. Yeah, you heard that, Eve? Sing. <laughs> no, but no seriousness. If you take this sentence and try to apply it literally, it will radically change our lives. Because many of us, we just say, ah, oh, it's okay, just shrug it off, right? It's okay, just, you know, just oh, think positive, think positive, think positive, right? But what is the advice here? Sing. And it says also, song is a weapon that we can always use against discouragement. And as we thus open the heart to the sunlight of the Savior's presence, we will have two things. Health, number one, and His blessing. Consider this passage as well. Voice in speech and song, 409, uh, paragraph 4. A means of victory over the enemy. I saw that we must be daily rising and keep the ascendancy above the powers of darkness. What does that statement say? A mean, the first sentence. It means that this is a daily process. A daily process to be ascendancy, above. Above the powers of darkness. So meaning, if you don't try, then you're below, right? If you try, then you're above. It says, Our God is mighty. I saw singing to the glory of God, often drove off the enemy, and praising God would beat him back and give us the victory. Are you having a hard time getting the victory? Are you having a hard time struggling with thoughts that you know are illogical, does not make any sense? You want to drive off Satan, what do you need to do? Sing. Sing, sing, and sing. So I want to challenge you today. You know, are you struggling with unexplainable or unkickable habits in your life? 
temptations that you just can't get rid of. It always comes to you. Thoughts that always come to your mind. You're trying to kick it, but it's just not working. Yes, you try to pray, but it seems like no one's listening. You listen to a sermon, but it just flows past you or you fall asleep or whatever. What do you need to do? There is one more power that you can tap into. And what is that? The power of song. The power of music. Play it out loud. Sing it out loud. And I challenge you to use godly music. Start using it. You have a bazooka in your pocket and you're not using it. Start singing some songs. Start playing some songs. And you will be surprised at how easy it is to pray and get help from the Word right after you set that atmosphere. And I'd like to end our message today with this story. You know, a few hymns have been sung in more tragic circumstances than this one. On the night of April 14, 1912, two years, or still right before the World War I started, on board the sinking boat, the Titanic. This great ship, you know, at that time, the greatest in the world, claimed to never, would never be able, would never be able to sink. Why? Because there are reservoirs, pockets of air that you can fill with water, you can crash the plane, uh, plane, you can crash the ship, you can shoot at it, you can break holes in it, it will never sink. Because it can take five big rooms or more than half the hern can be full of water and it still won't sink. Unsinkable ship. It was on its maiden voyage to New York with a happy, expectant, joyous company of over 2,000 people on board including many, many famous people. Shortly before midnight, on the third day on the Atlantic Ocean, the evening parties on the ship was breaking up. People, was be- people were beginning to retire to their rooms, and the, sh- and the ship suddenly shook from front to back. The ship had smashed into an iceberg. But the lights, however, were still blazing, right? The lights are still on, and, and for those, you know, have you have distant memories of a disco, you know what it looks like, right? The lights are still going on, and, uh, and, and, and the, the, the band was still playing, and the passengers, you know, kind of looked at one another, you know, what's going on? Um, and they had, some of them may have been a bit anxious, but none of them doubted that, you know, all is well. No issue, right? Even if we blasted a hole, it's fine. We won't sink. But shortly after, the alarms rang all along the ship. And within a few minutes, all the passengers were, were standing out on the deck with their, li- with their life belts, life vests, as many as were able to be passed around, knowing that the ship had struck an iceberg and the sea was pouring into a vast hole below them. And we all know the story. The supply of the life belts, the lifeboats were vastly inadequate for the number of people they had on board. And while the great ship bent over, and I don't know if you've seen uh, pictures of it, right? It's not this way, it's this way. Listed heavily towards her doom. Waves of panic, waves of shock spread across the passengers on the deck. And it was then that one lone viola started playing the song nearer 
my God to thee. Soon after, the other instruments you know, joined in and the passengers, all of whom were you know, looking deaf in the face because they knew that they would die in the freezing ocean, started to sing along. Eyewitness accounts uh, uh, wrote that people wept, they cried, they hugged, they kissed each other, they confessed their sins, they said sorry. And in three short hours, or the time between us arriving church and right now, the Titanic went down into the icy Atlantic, and out of the 2,000 plus people, only 700 people remained alive. But because of this hymn, because of this song being played, the majority of the 1,000 or 1,400 people, those who heard the music, heard the voice of God speaking to their hearts one last time. And because of that, they were drawn back to Him and they were saved. Friends, I don't know your music. I don't know what music you like, what music you listen to in the comfort of your own and the private of your own room. And it may seem like a really, really petty thing to preach about. Music. So much repeated and no one cares. But I do know from experience that your choice of music does affect or reflect your spiritual condition. I know mine definitely does. Why? Because God's music is not just frequencies a long time. It is a music that has power. Power as strong as prayer. As strong as your Bible. God's music has power, power that Satan does not want you to access. It's a power to teach you the Word. It's a sermon in itself. It's a power to pray for someone else. Music has the power to dissolve fights, to induce reconciliation. Music has the power to save someone, literally. Music has the power to cast the devil out. Music has the power to save you and save me. So friends, this week, if you have not used music to your advantage, I'd like to challenge you to commit to try. You know, whether it is by singing or by creating you know, a new playlist to play on a loop, maybe you need to delete your collection entirely. But I challenge you to do it. And Satan will do his best to not allow you to do it. And by God's grace and mercy, you can. Shall we rise and sing our closing song, Onward, Christian Soldiers? Now, this is not a planned part of the sermon, but as I was just standing there reflecting, I realized that now that you know that music is powerful, Satan will double his efforts to stop you from overcoming and so, um, I'd like to make a very, very simple appeal. One that I need to step down for as well. If you have felt this morning and now this afternoon that music is an area that you can use more in your walk with God, I'd like to invite you to come forward and let us pray together. Pray together that we can use this instrument, this 
gift that God has given us to strengthen our walk with Him. And if you feel that you haven't been accountable in your use of music as well, please, come forward. Let us pray together as a band of believers, as soldiers marching to war. Anyone else? Something that I need to step down for as well? Let us pray together if you feel that music is something that you need to use more in your walk with God. Let's pray. Father Heaven, even if even as you have seen the decisions that we've made, even as you have showed to us clearly from your word and spirit of prophecy and from our own lives and our own experience and our walk with you, that we struggle, Lord. We struggle because we're sinful. We struggle because we refuse to surrender. But Lord, you also gave us a realization that there is an area of our lives and there's a gift that you've given to us that we may not have used to the fullest of its ability. There's something that the patriarchs of old have used extensively, something that Jesus used to bring him through every evening as he agonized with you in prayer. And Lord, it is the gift of song, the gift of music. And Lord, I just pray that you would use each one of us here and that you would help us follow through with our commitment to come back to you and to be more accountable and more, um, more right in our use of this gift. And you know, Lord, that Satan has put in snares to ensure that we're distracted and have, and have made us realize that, um, or made us feel like, you know, music is just another thing that, you know, humans do and enjoy. But we know, Lord, from your scripture that music is a lot more divine than we take it to be. And so, Lord, this week, this month, this year, and the rest of our lives, as we start, begin, or continue to use more of music to encourage ourselves, to give us access to the power that you have, that you would help us to walk even closer to you. Show us, Lord, that a relationship with you is not just intellectual uh, Bible study, it's not just prayer, but it's also an expression of emotion, expression of your word in song. Lord, please continue to keep us faithful until that day where we do join all together in song on that sea of glass. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.